that he was here last year, so he'll be staying with us, which is delightful. The bad news is that uh, Venerable Amr City broke his leg, broke the what, tibia, the bottom, near, near his ankle, cracked it quite badly, so he's getting around on a cast. Uh, I'm in good health, uh, so is Vipassi, so all in all, it's very nice to be here. It's very, very hot. I think it was 35 degrees, and that is hot for us, and really hot for anyone. It's very, very dry. So, uh, anyways, it's beautiful. There are, uh, this place is full of mammals. We have beavers and coyotes and otters and deer and groundhogs and squirrels and chipmunks and raccoons and skunks and foxes and humans plus all kinds of birds. So it's a really beautiful, beautiful environment to be in. And it's extraordinarily quiet because we have, don't have any lay guests staying with us. We have stewards staying with us. So it's nice to, to be with you in this rather bizarre way where I see 25 people on one screen and then 25 people on another screen. Um, but I am, I'm, I'm honored that you invite me to, to share the Dhamma because it is, uh, uh, contemplating Dhamma is, of course, my, mm, my lifeblood. That's what I, uh, that's why I signed up to be a bhikkhu, to practice and to contemplate. And uh, trying to share ideas with others is very helpful for me because then I, I often, well, clarify something that I'm working on myself. So I, as I said in the previous Zoom meetings, I assume that the folk listening have uh, a good understanding of the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path. I just assume that. So if you haven't done that kind of work, it's very, very, very important that you get a good intellectual uh, grasp of the teaching. It's not enough, because if you just leave it at that, then it's just an opinion. But it is necessary. Also, I assume that people are committed to the moral precepts, nonviolence and so on, and also to um, social justice, to caring for the planet, uh, to a life of generosity. So those are the underpinnings of a, of a good life. Uh, and that is, a, a, obviously, that's a huge part of being a human being. Um, so when we talk about meditation, then we're not talking about the social aspect of our life. We're looking more at the stream of consciousness how we experience life moment by moment, moment to moment. And that's important to remember in the, in the Buddhist teaching, you have um, teachings which deal with social issues. So morality deals with who I am in, in, in this planet and how I should relate to others. Generosity, um, taking care of my parents, being a responsible bhikkhu, living within the Vinaya. All these things are, are, are very, very important. Uh, and they're about the conventions of being a human, the conventions of family life or monastic life. Um, so now we have this rather odd convention of COVID shutdown. And that's the kind of discipline governments have asked us to keep. And that's part of being a, a, a good um, civil person and trying to be harmonious in civil society. Now, if we, if that were the only part of Buddhism, only sila and dana, then of course we wouldn't be able to have the liberation of the mind because the liberation of the mind isn't a social phenomenon, is it? It's not something 
I do with you. It's something I realize individually. Only, only each of us can realize how to put an end to suffering. Although we can encourage each other, we can offer food to the poor, we can offer uh, social justice to the downtrodden. And those are very, very important issues. Um, as, a, as a bhikkhu, I, I, I don't uh, address uh, political issues and so on. Uh, I try to create an environment that is uh, peaceful and moral and then people come here and hopefully gain some energy and then they go back into their uh, complex social lives and um, try to deal with the issues that, that exist. So now there are a lot in the news about racial issues and social justice issues and environmental issues um, and then you'll have your own family situations you have to deal with. and that. I can't really advise that much on. I'm not an expert, and um, that's for other people to speak on. But they are important. They are important. <clears throat> so the contemplative life or the meditative life is is looking at our lives through the through the phenomena that we experience moment by moment, through sense phenomena, through the five aggregates, um, through just the things we we experience as a human being. I like to think of it as a stream of consciousness. So if I am, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm talking with one of the monks about something, not only am I having a social discourse with them and discussing uh, something about the monastery, I'm also feeling, aren't I? I'm, I'm feeling I'm getting across, I'm not getting across. Uh, maybe I, I feel a sore throat or uh, maybe I feel restless, I don't want to talk, or maybe even I feel annoyed at the monks. So not only is there just the activity of, of social discourse going on, there's also the inner world going on, isn't there, all the time. My reactions and my perceptions and, and that capacity to know your inner world is, is a kind of, I like to think of it as a kind of multitasking. And we can all do this. I can, I can be speaking with someone and also noticing how I'm getting across or how I'm reacting or what my inner world is doing with that. We have that capacity. We have the capacity for awareness. And because we have the compassion awareness, we can, we can observe cause and effect. We can see um, when we speak in certain ways to people, the response is good and helpful. Other ways, it's not good and helpful. We can see how when we're coming from a good place, there are no residues. When we're coming from a, a cynical or cruel place, we get a lot of residue in the mind and in society. So we can see in stream of consciousness that we affect uh, the inner world through our actions and speech, and especially our thoughts and what we do. Now, the, um, the goal of the meditative life is, is very, very close to us, but it's very hard to, to actually notice because we are oftentimes caught up in looking for something. We're looking for some experience. And the the looking for something is, is, takes us to the issue of, of desire and wanting. And that's very, very important to, to understand that the Buddha's teaching is very much a, an exploration of wanting. What is wanting and what is it about our lives that's skillful in our wanting and unskillful in our wanting? And the Four Noble Truths speak to that, don't they? So there's suffering, there's the cause and the end of suffering. The end of suffering is the abandonment of desire, or the cessation of desire, or the death of desire, if you want, or desirelessness. And this, this kind of language sometimes sounds like that at some point we'll have no desire. 
will have no wanting. But that doesn't make sense to me because the body's hungry, the body's uncomfortable, and it wants things which are quite rational and needful. If I don't feed the body, I die. Uh, or I want to help another monk maybe who has uh, broken his leg. Or uh, I, I want to make sure that the trees don't die in the drought we're having, so I water them. So there's nothing wrong with wanting, is there? In fact, we could not live without wanting. And that, that issue sometimes gets mixed up because what the teachings on, on Nibbana or the deathless or the uncreated are pointing to is that there's a peace in consciousness or within, within our possibility which is not accessed through desire. You don't access it through desire. You, you access it through non-desire. And this is very, very different. This is very, very different. So it's not a dismissal of desire. It's not saying desire is wrong or bad. There are consequences to following desire. Uh, yes, but it's not just a moral issue. It's not just about um, having a good diet and not eating too much junk food or whatever. It's actually much, much more profound than that. And, and what it points to is I think that when... When I seek peace, what am I seeking? Am I seeking an object? So when I feel a lack, or I feel some want, some lack within me, and I then pursue an object, and I get the object, and for a while I feel okay, and then that sense of lack comes up, and then I pursue another object, be it an emotion or a situation, Am I really pursuing, can objects ever, ever put an end to desire? Or am I seeking desirelessness itself? Because when I'm peaceful, my mind is not wanting, right? When I'm really at ease, like when you go out into nature and you, you look at a lake and your, your mind isn't creating anything and you just see the space and the silence and the sky, your desires are fulfilled in some kind of way. But what's what's really happening is you're realizing desirelessness the end of desire and i think that's what that's what we're really seeking we're not seeking an object or an experience we're actually um seeking desirelessness and desirelessness takes place when your mind stops thinking so what happens in in the way we operate we we our thinking mind is ignited by certain issues like i might be uh, planning uh, a beautiful trip to Thailand, I visit old friends, I haven't seen them for a while, or to KL, or to Sydney, or to wherever I go, and I start to think about that, right? So my thinking mind is then triggered by some kind of a desire. Desire, and it's not bad, it's not immoral, but that triggering then is a rebirth, isn't it? It's a rebirth of me thinking about the future, and what I will do and what I will become. And that to me is a good way of considering a rebirth. Now, when, when that thinking process is stopped, when the energy is stopped and when it's interrupted, there's a moment of desirelessness. The, the mind isn't creating anymore. It's not trying to get anywhere, get anything. And that gap or that sense of silence or the stillness is what we're trying to remember in the meditative life. Now, if you, if, 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 if you took my, you, you engaged in my instruction in the meditation, and I said, listen to sound, right? Very simple, listen to sound. 
And in that moment, when you're listening, and you're not looking for a sound or some meditative experience, you'll notice the silence of the mind. Why? Because it's desireless. It doesn't want anything. It doesn't need anything. In two minutes later, or a second later, you might want something. But in that moment of listening, you come to the goal of meditation. I think the goal of the spiritual life is that, that deep, deep silence. But that's so close. That's so close that it doesn't seem like much. And in meditation, typically what happens is you, you, you know, your, your thoughts about your trip to Thailand end, and then almost immediately, desire comes up to try to get rid of thought. So you're caught in desire again. And then you try to be the meditator who gets rid of thought so that you can be peaceful, or the meditator who focuses on the breath in order to be peaceful. But actually, if you're doing anything from desire, that already is not peaceful. Correct? Because desire is about the future, about becoming, about getting rid of. And yet, and yet, I want to be peaceful. Right? But how do you do it? How do you do it? I want to be peaceful. Well, that kind of wanting is, is, a, is a kind of aspiration or an inclination. But in flow of consciousness, where does peace lie? Is peace an experience, per se, like a sight or a sound or a taste? Or, 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 or whatever, because if it's an experience, then it begins and it ends. But if peace is not the experience, but the background, the knowing itself, then what does that say about experience? Well, to me it says, don't seek peace in an experience. No experience with desirelessness. Begin to practice desirelessness. Now you can do that, you can, you can bring that language in, in, into your mind to begin to practice with it. And that, to me, is using the third noble truth, Niroda, as, not as a kind of, you know, the, the, the language about Niroda is that there's the cessation of becoming, the cessation of uh, desire to get rid of, the cessation of sense desire. So it sounds like you get to a point, you meditate, meditate, meditate furiously, you get to a point, point, that's it, no more desire. But it doesn't work that way. The way it works is you begin to notice the mind of desirelessness. You notice the silence of the mind when it's not seeking or judging or trying to get rid of. So when you, when you take the language of Niroda or the Third Noble Truth and you begin to put it into your mind as an attitude. So let's say you start to to have some kind of emotional um, arising from uh, something that happened in the morning. And you start to feel the memory of that and you feel annoyed or resentful or guilty or whatever. Now that feeling that arises is, is just the result of having a mind, of having emotions, of having memory and having done something. So that's just consequential. It's not good or bad. But the experience itself might be unpleasant. You know, when the unpleasantness arises, rather than practicing desirelessness, desirelessness, it feels this way, we quickly get reborn into desire not to have this experience or to blame this experience on someone if it's negative. So the mind gets reborn into thinking. Why did they do that to me? Or I shouldn't. Let's say something like guilt that you you inadvertently 
um, insult someone that you didn't want to, or you say something inadvertently, which is kind of felt cruel, and, and you walk away from it, you have the memory traces, that memory trace is very unpleasant. It's like having a, a, a thorn in your heart. Now, when that memory trace comes up, because it's unpleasant, because we identify it as me and mine, you take it with desire and try to get rid of it. But that doesn't work. It doesn't take you to peace. It takes you to more guilt. And another experience. What takes you to peace? What would take you to the peace in the midst of, 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 of guilt, say, as an example? Well, it seems to me, if you could abide with, desire, with desirelessness, with awareness of things as they are, with the feeling of guilt, if you could stay with that, then what the feeling of guilt would always bring you back to silence and peace. Because all conditions arise and cease from silence and peace. But that's counterintuitive because your intuitions and your habits are, I have to get rid of this guilt. I have to be a different kind of person. I shouldn't be that kind of person. And thought is reborn as a sense of self. Rebirth takes place and you run with that for a while with thoughts and feelings and, and, and so on. And then it stops again something interrupts it because it's not permanent as well. Now, what we're trying to notice is that little bit of space there, that little bit of gap and say, ah, oh, it's like this, because that's where the silence, the silence is always here. Peace is always here. It's just our attention is out into objects and we're not available for peace. So let's say that the, in, in, in this instance, the guilt comes up uh, about something, mem old memory, whatever, and it comes up and what do I do with it? Do I fix it, analyze it, try to get rid of it, distract it? All of that is going out into objects. But what if I say, well, it's just an object. It feels horrible. It's just an object. It feels this way. Then I'm, that very object of guilt is pointing to the silence of the mind because the knowing is silent and it's peaceful. And that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for a perfect emotion. If you look for the perfect emotional uh, constructs, you're going to be in trouble. Because <laughs> emotions are not perfect. They come and they go, they're good and they're bad. So if you think that, say, liberation is always having love, that's a very heavy thing to lay on yourself, isn't it? You know, if I was a really good Buddhist, a really good monk, I'd love everyone all the time. And then what happens if I don't? Well, then I try to get rid of that unloving feeling and become someone who is loving, which is craving, which is tanha. But if I speak rightly, act rightly, and I feel aversion to one of the monks, and I say, oh, what's, what would desirelessness be in this case? And desirelessness with this feeling of aversion would be to know it just as it is, an event in consciousness which is unpleasant. Now, the unpleasant stimulates desire for the pleasant, right? Now, emotionally, that's hard to see. So the, the feeling of annoyance that I have for one of the monks, then I, if I just know it, if I trust, I know that I know. I know that I know. The knowing is important, not the emotion. The knowing is important. I know that I know. And I bear with it. I know that I know. Don't go there. I know that I know. Eventually, it has to cease. But in the ceasing, there's a powerful sense of peace because now I haven't followed the usual patterns of desire. I haven't patterned the usual uh, patterns of thinking and judging and analyzing. I haven't gone to thought. I haven't been reborn in thought. 
I haven't taken birth into the thinking mind and viradharma as a sense of self. <coughs> I've just known it as an unpleasant experience. And then the peace becomes very, very obvious. Sure, it's not about the emotions, because Nibbana cannot be an emotion. Peace cannot be an emotion per se. It's different. It's different. It's not, it's not experiential. You give experiential peace, yeah. You know, everything is right, and, and you're on a beach, and your mind is peaceful. But the peace that we're talking about is beyond experience. It's beyond duality. So in the, in the non-dual mind, in the mind which isn't taking preferences, you can feel pain. Most of you probably have done this, physical pain, say. You know, you have a, in meditation or, your, or, or whatever, you have physical pain, and you can witness to that from peace. And you can have physical pleasure, and you can witness that from the same peace of mind, can't you? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. And this is one of the really important lessons in meditation. When you feel discomfort in your meditation, nothing big, don't hurt yourself, but you can, you can see, oh, discomfort is unpleasant. But that knowing, that knowing is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It just knows. And you begin to have confidence that within unpleasantness and within pleasantness, there is a background silence and peace which is not dependent on the pleasantness or the unpleasantness. Now, the fulfillment of desire is dependent on pleasantness, but it leads to more desire and more desire and more desire. It's not bad, it's not wrong, but it's not the place where the peace of the mind lies. It lies in here, as it were, in consciousness itself. I have a, I have a quote from a teacher who's been very influential to me. I thought I'd read it. It's a bit dense, so maybe I'll read it twice. I've, I've read it on retreats. Some of you have heard it. And it, it really it points to this very, very well. It, the teacher's name is Jean Klein, who was uh, German-French. Let, let me read it to you and see how you go. You have to really pay attention, huh? As if you weren't before. <laughs> um, we must, therefore, begin with the analysis of desire. What do I want? Can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? And I would say objects are not just like cars and, and, and food and things. Objects are also emotions. All experiences are objective. Okay? Can my desire be gratified by the possession of objects? Objects. Are, are they what I seek? Do they contain what I seek? Let us observe what happens when a desire is satisfied. We see that the gratification of a desire is nothing but its death. And that therefore, when we are in search of bliss, we really are pursuing nothing but the death of desire. And I would say that to me is the third noble truth. Um, but not death of desire by killing, not that way, death of desire by not going there. This proves that our ultimate desire is non-desire. But non-desire appears to our normal consciousness as being blankness. And yet, it is in this blankness that we must try to probe with open eyes so as to discover its true nature. In fact, this nothingness is experienced by everybody in infinitesimal gaps 
which occur between thoughts. Each time one desire dies, giving place to the next. Okay? If from time to time we experience moments of stillness and deep attention turn towards these gaps of nothingness, little by little, the emptiness will reveal itself as being full and finally as supreme plenitude. One should adapt this attitude as often and as clearly as possible, thereby allowing it to be more penetrating and effective. With this in view, one should be available, ceaselessly questioning oneself, calmly observing one's own behavior without passion. A new and non-objective outlook may then progressively prevail on us and we may come to understand that we are not the ego. We may then, with a complete and new awareness, taste the unexpected flavor of these moments of non-desire, which will be revealed as being plenitude, silence, and peace. This flavor, which is only fleeting at first, will become more constant and vigorous until that time when it will appear as a reality which carries us, enfolds us, and is our very substance. The bliss which is then experienced is entirely different from what we usually call happiness. For at this level of consciousness, one cannot even say, I am happy, since a consciousness which establishes a distinction between a subject and an attribute would be a dual consciousness. We have mentioned watchfulness and availability, it must be understood that these must be imperfect, perfect in their quality. The quality and purity of attention which result are the essential conditions of success. The exercise of this pure attention implies the complete elimination of all elements from the past, thus allowing the authentic purity of the present to be completely grasped. We must forget everything and wait, yet wait for nothing. This entails a state of complete receptivity, which seizes and is open to the complete, eternal, and perfect newness of each moment. Well, that's a very packed reading. Uh, and and, and if, you, if you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths, you know, like, I've always liked that phrase, I've been reading this since 1990, and I probably read it once a month or something. Um, like he says, we have mentioned watchfulness and availability. And if, if you think about that, desire is that the absorption into, into a con some kind of conscious experience, isn't it? I'm absorbed into planning or into creating something, which is not bad, not bad. But if I want to understand, I think the, post, the peace that the Buddha said was possible, then I cannot be preoccupied with things which are always changing. And it's, it's preoccupation which is the problem, not, not desire in itself, you know, because desire is not wrong. It's just this constant preoccupation with thought, with thinking, with planning, with the future, with the past. Isn't that true? Isn't that what our our attention is always doing. And if I'm preoccupied with time, with the past and the future, how can I realize the timeless or the deathless or the unconditioned, right? 
So we're not trying to we're not trying to get that with desire as a future possibility. We're actually challenging the very nature of time, right? We're saying could could freedom really be tomorrow? Because tomorrow it can only be something which would die, on and die, right? So freedom must be. You know, I I think all of us have like if you're a contemplative, you must pick up the whole issue of time. Could 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 liberation be tomorrow? Maybe, yeah, you hear about it. But could the pathway be one of trying to get something in time? It couldn't be. It had, must be something of awakening in the present. Certainly the liberating experiences take place in time, but the attitude seems to me must be something about uh, awareness, availability, and giving up the whole sense of becoming. And that's one of the ways we talk about craving, don't we? We say the bhavatanha and vibhavatanha. It's the idea that I'm going somewhere to become something. Well, yes, I'm going to the shrine room to do the meditation. Yes, I am uh, going to the dhanasala to have the meal, sure. But in terms of stream of consciousness and, and the whole sense of peace, is there something that is not dependent on time? That's akaliko, we say. The Dhamma is akaliko, not a matter of time. And what do you come back to? You always come back to awareness. So awareness isn't something you get in time. It's, something, it's more like you remember, don't, don't you? you? You kind of, oh yeah, yeah, I'm here now. I know that I know. I know that I know. And so that, to me, is a, a kind of, um, what would I say? It's, it's something you really have to trust in. And, and, and not, not as dogma, and, I, and I th- it's also a trust that comes from a logical understanding of where craving is limited, where, where it cannot take you to this. Now, this might seem very um, abstruse or abstract in the time of COVID and so on, but when we, when we touch that piece of the heart, when we are with that, we are so available for everything else because we found fulfillment in our hearts, not somewhere outside, and actually our capacity to serve uh, and to be creative or whatever you want is, is very, very much powerful, very powerful. You know, the 17th of June was, was Lumpa Cha's birthday, um, just, just passed, and, and we, we heard a, a, a talk of his um, that was recorded at IMS in 19... 19- uh, 79. It's somewhere on YouTube. Um, and I've heard it many times, but I hadn't heard it for quite a long time. It was just so beautiful to hear his voice. And Ajahn Prabhagra was doing the translating. And, and of course, he, thinking about Ajahn Chah, he had realized this. You know, he taught, he said, uh, be the knowing and, and let go of future, let go of thought, play one. And I was really listening to the way he was talking about meditation. And it wasn't, it wasn't like concentrating on something to eliminate everything else. It was more like, just don't go to thought. Don't worry planning. Don't go to worry. Come back to the moment. Come back to the moment. Which is focus. But it's not about the object. It's about the awareness itself. And then you look at Lumpa Cha's life. What a... What a what a gift he was to the world, wasn't he? Where we're still, you know, um, celebrating his life and, and taking his teaching. And that was a man who stayed in his own monastery 
um, and just allowed the world to come to him. It's marvelous with the kind of possibility of the human mind. And, and this, I would say, is what in the West people don't like to talk about religion. They talk about spirituality. And, and I think this is, this is something which is bigger than psychology. Buddhist psychology gets you there, you know, getting beyond greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's not a psychological state. Psychological states that preoccupy our minds need to be dealt with. Yes, we need to let go of them. So if we have anger issues or fear issues, yes, we need to somehow get beyond them. But it's not another psychological state that we're moving toward. There's something that is, that is beyond that or bigger than that, but it's always here now. And in any moment of any gap in thinking, if you trust and you, you are grateful, I would say grateful to, to that moment of awareness, then you're on the right track. If you just judge yourself, oh, gee, I'm thinking too much, you'll be in desire again. And criticism and aversion, that won't work. But if you can bring up gratitude, oh, great, there's this moment of presence. I know that I know it's like this now. And keep trusting in that, keep reinforcing that. That will take you to silence. That will take you to peace. That will take you to, is liberation, I would say. Trouble is, <laughs> problem is, the habits of desire are very powerful. Uh, and, and they're very, very uh, overwhelming at times. And, and, and life's complexities are very overwhelming. So you deal with it. You deal with life complexities. But then you try to remember that in any given moment, when you know that you know, that is the path. And, and, and you start to do that all the time. Even when you're feeling upset or, or disappointed. You feel disappointed. Oh, this is disappointment. I know that I know. It's the knowing not the disappointment. I don't have to feel always fulfilled or, or I don't always have to feel confident or, or, you know, I can feel a lack of confidence and I can feel like a complete basket case and still know, oh, this is what a basket case feels like. It's still the same knowing. It's difficult. In fact, sometimes you feel confident. Well, that's it. You know, liberation is the feeling of confidence. And what do you do when you get the opposite feeling? Silence is not confidence. Silence is something deeper than confidence. It is, obviously, there's a sense of confidence within it. But the, you know, when, you, when you can know a lack of confidence and not need to get its opposite, you begin to see the awareness of that is beyond a duality of those two. And so we talk about worldly dharmas, love and hate, success and failure, good times, bad times, COVID, no COVID, whatever you want. These are dualities, and that's the conventional world that we live in. The world of our responsibilities, the world of morality, the world of, of, of social justice, and, and learning things, and learning craft, and learning music, and uh, so on and so forth. Those are good things. I like to learn things. It's great. But, but the goal of a spiritual life is, is, is profoundly different. It's profoundly different. And so we need to make times to be available to that to be available to silence and, and, and allow it to reveal itself in that way. So how's that, Vivian? <laughs> Shall we open to, uh, to questions?